0: Of Jesus, teach us to live with an altered reality, to teach us to live differently, to not just be a part of the flow and the stream and the movement of culture and society, but to be a part of his kingdom and understand his kingdom and what drives his kingdom and what brings glory to him. And so these stories, these parables, these fictitious moments where Jesus made up these stories to help his disciples, to help his students understand this is the altered reality of becoming a believer, becoming a Christian, being a follower of Jesus. It's that you have this one way of life without God in the formula, without God in, the, in, the, in the, the, the equation for how you're going to live and then you're going to shift and adjust when you trust in Christ and now live this way. And in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus teaches us to live primed, to live ready. to be be engaged and to be prepared and to be ready to do what he calls us to do and to be ready because he not only came, lived with us, died for us, was resurrected for us, but he didn't leave us. He sent his spirit to live with us and he is returning one day for us and we'll all be together in eternity. And that creates this sense of anticipation, Regardless of the delay, it creates a directive from him to be ready, to be alert, and to be living with an expectation that literally leaves us primed, leaves us available at any moment for what he might want to do. The story is in Matthew chapter 25. It begins in verse 13. Let me take just a moment to read it to you in its entirety. Feel free to look in your Bibles, pull it up on the, on the YouVersion app. Uh, the notes are in there for you as well on Uversion. Understand the story as we begin to look at it, and then we'll begin to look at specific applications. How do I live prime? How do I live with this sense of expectation? How do I live with a sense of anticipating something greater than myself taking place, and I want to be ready for it? I wanna be prepared for it. Matthew chapter 25 verse one says, at that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins. Now I'm just gonna update contemporary language real quick. What Jesus is talking about in his culture are bridesmaids. In his culture, all bridesmaids were unmarried. And so they typically referred to them as virgins. And so maybe a little awkward for us in our culture that that's the way the language is written. But just remind yourself through this story, we're talking about a group of bridesmaids. We're talking about an extravagant and large wedding because there's 10 of these bridesmaids. And again, in that culture, that would be extremely extravagant and extremely large. So at that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the groom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. When the foolish took their lamps, they didn't take oil with them, but the wise ones took oil in their flask with their lamps. When the groom was delayed, they all became drowsy and fell asleep. In the middle of the night, there was a shout Here comes the groom! Come out to meet him, which was part of the, in these mid-eastern weddings, it was a part of the festivities at that moment that they would greet him and bring him back into the banquet hall. Then all the virgins got up, they trimmed their lamps in verse seven. The foolish ones said to the wise ones, give us some of your oil because our lamps are going out. The wise ones answered, no, there won't be enough for us and for you. Go instead to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. When they had gone out to buy some, the groom arrived and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet and the door was shut. Later, the rest of the virgins, the rest of the bridesmaids also come and they say, master, master, open up for us. He replied, truly, I tell you, I don't know you. Jesus' directive Therefore, be alert, because you don't know either the day or the hour. Jesus is talking about the establishment of his kingdom. He's talking about the growth of his kingdom, and he's talking about the return of the final establishment of his kingdom. He's talking about that promise that he gave the church, that I am coming back, and when I, re- when I return, I am going to take you to be with me. So that as Paul would later teach the New Testament church, we have this anticipation, we have this expectation that either way, through the process of physical death, we're going to be with Jesus as his followers or through the event of his second coming, his return, we will be with Jesus. And either way, Paul says, we will be with him and with one another forever. And Jesus chooses one of the largest celebrations in Mideast culture to describe the excitement, the anticipation, the, the looking forward to this event. A wedding in Mideast culture was a long and drawn out event. There were actually three phases to it. There is the promise phase. This phase, contrary to our culture, it might seem a little rough and difficult for some of us. This phase in the promise phase is between parents, Nobody's fallen in love. Nobody's getting a ring by Christmas. Nobody's doing any of those cute things that we like to watch and read and experience. The parents have negotiated a legal contract including payment for the daughter to the dad of the grandma, vice versa, reverse that. Inclu- so this legal contract's a binding contract. This arrangement has been made probably when they were children. And from the promise to the first celebration, it's just living with an awareness of who you're going to be married, even if you've never met them, never had experience, didn't know who they are. The second phase of the wedding process is the betrothal. This is also a legal and binding moment, but it's when there is an exchange of vows and the exchange of gifts this would be very similar to our weddings. It would be very similar to having wedding showers, very similar to anticipating a date, very similar to a moment that's going to take place where people are going to happen. In fact, it was so deeply rooted in Jewish culture that it was legally binding enough that during the betrothal stage, you had to have an official legal divorce to get out of this engagement. That's the issue we find when Jesus is born. When Mary finds herself supernaturally pregnant because she's a virgin and she has not had sexual relationships and yet God in divine miraculous activity plants the son of God in her and she's to give birth to the son of God. And when her betrothed, her fiance, finds out she's pregnant, you'll see in the New Testaments, in the Gospels, the history of the life of Jesus, you'll see that Joseph struggles in this moment to decide what to do. He loves Mary. He cares for Mary, which is good. Actually, ironically, I read one statistic this past week that said that most prearranged marriages actually work and are very successful and the couples are very happy. Not living in a culture where we do that, it's just kind of hard for me to imagine. That's not really of any importance. I just think it's interesting. Joseph doesn't want to do any harm to Mary. He decides quietly to divorce her, quietly to go through the legal proceedings to divorce her. When an angel shows up and says, look, Joseph, let me explain to you exactly how this is playing out. God is intervening, not just in Mary's life and not just in your life, but in the life of the entire world for every generation before, for every generation to come. The Messiah will be born through Mary. As the prophet Isaiah had expressed and said, born through Mary through a virgin, a miraculous birth, bringing the Son of God, now both man and God simultaneously into the world. But they were in the betrothal stage, and it was going to require legal actions to stop the contract. In our story, we're getting ready for the banquet stage. We're getting ready for that final moment, which is the wedding feast, which is the most public of all the events. It's later. It was typically delayed. It was typically an extremely large celebration involving not only family, but all the community. It lasted for multiple days. And after that moment, they lived together for the first time. It's in this moment that Jesus creates this story. The bridegroom is coming, and he's to be with his bride, and they are to celebrate with all their family, with all their friends. And it was typical because oftentimes the contracts, the relationships were outside of immediate geography. And so it's not unusual that the bridegroom's coming late at night or traveling from some distance. And it's not uncommon and it's not rude that we don't know when he's going to arrive. That is normal cultural experience for the Jews at this time. It seems way out of place again for us. And that's the scenario, that's the foundation of this story is Jesus is describing the bridesmaids waiting for the groom to arrive. And they are a consistency like most bridesmaids of some that are foolish and some that are wise. Okay, nobody laughed. I'm sorry. I'll have to post an apology later. They're they're not completely prepared for this moment. And so as a result, when he shows up, not everybody's going to be ready and when he shows up the anticipation is to go into to to enter into the wedding banquet which is protected and guarded it's going to be a very positive and good event and those who are ready are not prepared and can't go in won't be allowed in and jesus is comparing this huge feast To the reality, we must know him. We must be in a relationship with him if we want to participate and participate in the celebration of heaven. That great and final wedding feast when we are together forever with Jesus, no longer facing the pain, sorrow, death, loss, and mourning of this world, but we are in that moment celebrating with him in all eternity, And some will miss it because of poor decision-making and others will miss it because they were distracted or they somehow didn't understand the importance and the significance of making that decision. But some will get it, understand it, and will experience it and will enjoy eternity. I think this story is really pertinent to us today because today the numbers statistically continue To decrease. In the early 1960s, coming out of the 1950s and kind of a a glorious time of of new thought and new industry and new activity for us as a nation, having come out of such a significant war and combat and conflict. In that time, everybody was essentially prosperous and moving and most people attributed it to God. And over 90% of the United States population, anytime a poll was taken, said yes, I believe in God. That number has consistently dropped over the last 50 to 60 years. Where today, even amongst conservatives, the number is only around 58% will actually respond to a question, do you believe in God? And say in the affirmative, yes. This is a dual prong moment for us. It's a call to those who haven't yet made the decision to believe, to consider believing, and ultimately, for the sake of the, of the benefits of knowing God, make that decision to know God, to trust in Christ. But it's also a call for us. We are the church. And we are the ones who are in the most pivotal position to share with those who don't believe in God how knowing Him and being with Him and that life-changing relationship He gives us through Christ can change their lives. And we need, we need to be prepared both for his return and this wedding feast, but we also need to be prepared to do all we can to reach all we can. Because once that moment happens, it's an irrevocable moment. You can't bring it back. You can't take it. You can't say, you know, I should have spent more time thinking about spiritual things. I just didn't, you know, can you give me a little longer? When that moment happens, there's no more time. The decision has to be made in that moment. So the first thing we do in our altered reality, the first thing we do as believers is we live primed and we live primed with anticipation. In verse one, Jesus said, at that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like these 10 unmarried bridesmaids who took their lamps and went out to meet the groom. They left the house excited. They left wherever they were staging, excited and looking forward to. There was anticipation. We, we understand this. We, we always have things we're looking forward to. I have talked to two dozen people at least this morning who have said the same thing to me and I have reiterated it back and reflected it back because I believe the same thing. I cannot wait for fall to get here. <laughs> and in Southeast Texas, especially if you're on live stream with us this morning, welcome and we're glad you're here with us. But in Southeast Texas, it doesn't matter what day, on the calendar, fall begins. For us this year, fall began last week, and we have set heat records every day this week. But the weathermen, as frustrated as they might be in Texas, is anticipating we might get some fall-like weather by the end of the week We look forward to it. We're anticipating, we're talking about it, not because we're doing just social conversation. Hey, I don't know what to say to you. You're the pastor. I'll ask you what you think about the weather because we already know what we think about the weather. Just about nobody likes it. I met one man from Minnesota recently who said if you had ever had to shovel snow in Minnesota, you would not complain about the heat in Houston. Makes sense to me as much as I can understand and grasp that. We're anticipating something. I'm anticipating this weekend, next weekend, technically, the start of bow season. A month after that, the start of deer season. The week after that, the start of my sabbatical. And we, we're we anticipating, we look forward to something. Every kid in here has a birthday. One of our deacons has a birthday tomorrow. Randy Davis is a year older. He told me the number this morning, but because I'm similar in age, I've already forgotten what that number is. But he's looking forward to his birthday tomorrow. Kids are looking forward to their birthday. They're looking forward. I'm already looking forward to Christmas Walmart is already looking forward to Christmas (laughs) I live next to a Walmart one one of those big gigantic ones and they, in the last past month, have brought back in all of these huge storage containers and stacked them side by side by side. And I got curious one day. they have to pass Walmart to get to Waterburger for breakfast. And one day, Carrie and I were there, and I dropped her off. She was going to go do some stuff, and I was going to go do some stuff. And I went back and I drove real slow past the containers, and I found some guys that were actually had one open and loading. And in a typical obnoxious extroverted way, I rolled down my window. Hey, what are you guys doing? They're looking at me, who are you? It's only 110 degrees outside, heat index right now. And they look at me and say, we're putting up Christmas decorations. Walmart's ready for us and for our money. This isn't a commercial, it's just a reality. It's not even an altered reality. It's the re- they're, they're ready. We're always anticipating. It doesn't seem abnormal or somehow out of text or context for Jesus to say to us, Are you looking forward? to my return. Are you ready for it? Are you you anticipating it, expecting it? Are you living with that sense of joy? These bridesmaids, they're excited. This is going to be a week of just ecstatic activity and, and social interaction. They're looking forward to it. And Jesus makes the comparison that we should be living with that kind of participation. But he's very realistic as well. We, see if we're going to live primed, we've got to live prepared. In verse two, he says, "Five of the five of them were foolish, and five were wise. When the foolish took their lamps, they didn't take oil with them. Now, remember, they don't know how long this event's going to last. They don't even know when the bridegroom's going to show up at this point." They, they didn't take oil with them, but the wise ones who took oil with them had it in their flask. These are little oil lamps that have a little rag that goes down into a clay little jar and it has oil on the bottom. And when that runs out, you have to take that, that rag, you have to pour new, joy, so you, new oil in. And so you have these two instruments, these two pieces of equipment that you have to take with you, especially if you're planning on staying up all night, which they were because they were waiting for the groom and they wanted to be there. They had to prepare. God calls us to prepare. That's why we study our Bibles and that's why we make decisions about faith. That's why we don't put it off. That's why we ask our children to make decisions about faith. That's why we help our students make decisions about faith and understand what scripture teaches. We need to be prepared. Christianity is not just this thing you sort of trip into and then stumble through the rest of your life. It is a process of anticipating, knowing Jesus, and being with him in eternity, and then preparing for that, doing the things necessary, learning how to pray, Learning how to interact, learning how to be a part of a church, learning how to share our faith with other people, learning how to be willing to do whatever we need to do. Go to Nairobi and help them tell people how to make the decision to trust in Jesus because he's coming. And we need to be prepared. Delay is oftentimes inevitable, but it doesn't have to be devastating. In this case, it's pretty devastating. In verse five, the groom is delayed. They all became drowsy, fell asleep. That makes sense. Then in the middle of the night, someone shouts, here comes the groom. Come out to meet him. And then all the bridesmaids get up and they begin to trim their lamps. And, and the wise ones, have, are, they're ready to go because they prepared. But the foolish ones weren't ready. They didn't anticipate the delay. They didn't prepare, they didn't compensate, they didn't do what was necessary to be ready in that moment. The truth is they didn't take responsibility. They just thought they would kind of float through it. And it doesn't work that way. And so now they have to leave the party. They have to leave this great moment They have to leave this great event to go and find somebody who will sell them oil. And it's the middle of the night, trust me. Even in the ancient Near East, in the first century AD, the merchants are not open 24 hours a day and ready to sell. They're in some serious trouble, some serious difficulty because they simply didn't anticipate the delay and they simply didn't take responsibility. We know this, it happens to us all the time. It happened to me last night. I was watching up. I'm hoping nobody's here or nobody's online that recorded the game last night and hopes to watch it today because this is a spoiler. So I'm telling you right now, you can turn off your iPad for the next 45 seconds or so. Watching the game last night, it was a great game. It's the best game in the series against Baltimore. The other games were sleepers. I was a bridesmaid, drowsy and falling asleep. And I don't like it when we lose. I'm just, I'm gonna to have to be honest. I've, winning is important. And and actually, I kind of think Jesus says winning's important in this parable because he tells us, you need to do this. You need to be ready. You need to do what's necessary. So we hit the bottom of the eighth inning. And they again hit a home run with a double. And they again took the lead. And I'm kind of frustrated. I wasn't anticipating any delay in the process or in the game. And so out of my frustration, I told my wife, which is something, if you're new to the Astros, you should know you should never actually say about the Astros. I said, it's the bottom of the eighth. There are two runs ahead of us. There is no way we're coming back from this. The ninth is just gonna be devastatingly sad and boring. Let's change the channel and watch something else before we go to bed. I did. It was a great, great old TV show. It was their Christmas special. I'm am amazed how a Christmas special in 1967 was all about Jesus and who Jesus. I'm like, oh man, this goes well with the sermon. I thought about bringing you a clip. I mean, this is, this is great. I went to bed happy. I'm just about to fall asleep. Now you need to understand, Carrie, my wife, she is the original baseball An Astros fan. Some of the guys are under this illusion. I liked it even as far back as grade school and and played it some in high school. No, they didn't let me play in high school. Um, So I kind of held a grudge against it. But my wife loves baseball. And she has, over the years, converted me to baseball. So I I am a recent convert, not so much to the game, but definitely to the Astros. I'm like just on the edge of getting ready to go to sleep. And she comes in and she says... Did you look up the game? Did you see how it ended? I'm kind of groggy and drowsy, kind of bridesmaidish. I, I got to stop making fun of bridesmaids, Paul. You're the only one that's laughing at me. Um, well, you're the only one that's laughing with me. Others may be laughing at me. But, you know, and I roll over and I get my phone and I look it up. Okay, here's the part you need to turn off if you haven't watched the game. Plug your ears. In the top of the ninth... They scored four runs, and the bottom of the ninth, Baltimore scored one run, ending the game in the astros' favor eleven to ten i didn 't know what to say or do, I mean, we had already prayed together there wasn't time to repent there wasn't a, i mean i did, I, I mean think about it for just a second I was 15 minutes away from watching probably the best conclusion to an Astros game all season just because I got a little bored and a little anxious and decided I didn't want to watch the end I can't blame anybody other than myself I should have had better anticipation. I should have had better preparation. I should not have been thrown off guard by the delay. And I should accept now in this moment, openly to all of you, my responsibility. Because I want to live the directive. Missing out on a baseball game, not so bad. My wife is so good. She is so efficient that as we turned it off, I started, I, I was in favor of just deleting the game. And she said, no, I'm going to stop it right here, just in case you're wrong. <laughs> she didn't say it exactly like that. So I do have that 15 minutes, and I do get to watch it right after lunch. So I'll get to see it, but I get to see it late, and I get to see it knowing what happens. But the truth is, I can still look forward to that. I can still, we, she made the preparations, she recorded it, it's available for us. The delay threw us off last night, but I still get to see it. I can take responsibility for my dilatory actions, but I still get to see it. The same thing's true. Jesus is coming back. No one, no matter how much they say they do or how many graphs they make, has any clue when that's going to happen. Nobody knows what's going to to take place in the ninth inning. I do, from reading scripture and watching the news, have a pretty solid conclusion that we are in the ninth inning. This is it. I think it will happen in our lifetime. And I want to do what Jesus tells. In verse 13, he gives us the simple directive about living primed. Therefore, be alert. Because you don't know either the day or the hour. Be alert. What will we do this week in light of the knowledge that for all we know and for everything we can anticipate, Jesus is coming back? How will it change my afternoon? How will it change work tomorrow? How will it change the activities and the priorities and the things we've talked about? How will it change my anticipation? Am I really living with that sense of expectation? It could happen this week. Because for everything we know and for all every scholar has figured out and understood since the time of Jesus, it could. It could happen this week. In which case, let me just go ahead and say in advance, we do not plan on having services next Sunday. And I pray in all sincerity that if you don't know Jesus and he comes back this week, you'll make that decision right now so that you'll be ready and you'll be with us in heaven next week. I know that sounds almost kind of just sentimental, kind of fallacious in some ways, just just frivolity, but it is the truth of scripture. It is Jesus's promise. The the groom is coming for his bride, us. We don't know when, but it's our responsibility. It's our anticipation. It's our preparation to be ready. This is how you do it. If you've never asked Jesus into your heart, these are the words I prayed when I first met him. Father, I want to confess that I'm a sinner. I know that I've done wrong. I know I've made decisions contrary to knowing you. But right now, I want to know you. Forgive me of my sin. Come into and change my life. And let me know you now and forever. Let me be with you in heaven, for eternity. In Jesus' name, amen. Our band's coming and we're gonna worship and close out. But if you made that decision, please let one of us know. You can talk to any of the pastors. You can contact us today in the service. You can contact us this week, um, email, call, whatever. Let somebody know. Let your friend know. If you came with a friend, if you're here because a parent brought you or a friend brought you, they're here because they love you and they want you to know the greatest love, which is knowing Jesus. Let them know. Let someone know you've made that decision and now you're a follower of Christ. And just begin the process of understanding what that means. And when Jesus comes back, when he comes back, you're ready now. If you didn't make that decision, we understand, but we want to help with questions or any doubts or any reason that you have not to trust God at this moment. So again, just let us know. We'll love to talk to you, share our experiences, and help you make that decision. It is the single most life-changing decision any one of us ever makes, and we want to share it with you.